Welcome to the next installment of Tedween Talks, a podcast dedicated to exploring critical concepts and authors' perspectives on books from Tedween Publishing. It is our hope that by giving authors the opportunity to articulate the context of their writing, that we can shed light on their expertise, the ongoing implications of their arguments, and how the book relates to the present. In this episode, I talk to Dr. Ahmed Dalal, who is Dean of Georgetown University in Qatar. He was Professor of History and was the Provost at the American University in Beirut from 2009 to 2017. His academic training and research cover the history of disciplines of learning in Muslim societies, including both the exact and the traditional sciences, as well as early modern and modern Islamic thought and movements. In 2017, he published his primer on ISIS with Tedween, entitled The Political Theology of ISIS, Prophets, Messiahs, and the Extinction of the Gray Zone. Today, we will hear his thoughts on what continues to ring true about the scholarship of this book, how he believes the underlying political theology of the group has either changed or remained static, given its loss of territoriality, and more. My uh, undergraduate degree is in mechanical engineering. I practiced engineering. I used to fix airplanes for about uh, five years and then went to Colombia. I did Islamic studies in the at the time it was called Mila Middle East studies, Middle East languages and uh, cultures. What's now MISAS? You know, I wrote my dissertation on astronomy and history of science, but I worked on disciplines of learning more broadly. So, you know, I worked on the exact sciences and the traditional sciences, and my approach has been to study disciplines of learning in their cultural context, broader cultural context, and also look at the relationship, the, the possible relationship between various disciplines and look at the transformation in these disciplines and these uh, traditional disciplines of learning over time and try to contextualize that. I've worked on history of science and science and religion. This is one broad field, you know, various aspects of, of that, including science and religion, but also the exact sciences, astronomy and a little bit of medicine. And I've worked on another big uh, project, is early modern Islamic thought and movements. And of course, you know, my work intersects with theology, with Islamic law, studying movements and studying the ideologies of of, uh, movements. So I also taught Islamic thought and movements in the early modern and the modern period. I haven't published as much on the modern period, but I have a large repertoire. My approach, my take, is I look at uh, what's characteristic about a particular tradition, uh, you know, at a certain point in time, how it relates to earlier periods, and to try to understand the transformations and the transitions and, you know, try to contextualize and explain why these transformations happen. So I mostly work, and I just published my last book on the on the long 18th century, 18th century which is, uh, it starts before the beginning of the 18th century and ends somewhere around, depending on the region, around the, the middle of the, of the 19th century. But I also worked on a little bit on on later period and of periods, and of course, you know, it's it's an area of interest for me. And right before publishing my last book, uh, which I've been working on for a period of time, I decided to dedicate some time and study ISIS and publish this little essay on ISIS. Could you tell us about the book then? Obviously, you have a lot of background in political theology. I know it was a speech before it was a book. You were interested in this because it was maybe the biggest player in the scene. Could you? Tell us what the book is about, the major arguments, why it was important to write it. 
So let me start why I thought it was important to write it. You know, I, I used to be provost at AUB. I stepped down. I went back. I rejoined the faculty. I was on sabbatical. And I actually dedicated my sabbatical year. I started working on, on it before the beginning of my sabbatical, but I dedicated my sabbatical year. I sort of immersed myself in, in the literature of ISIS and wrote this book. I felt uh, a need and responsibility to address. I felt that there is a perspective of this important, uh, extremely disruptive phenomena, uh, which people usually do not address. I felt that it's it's relevant to address it and, and work on it. So this is why I decided to work on it. The, the book, what I try to do in this book is to identify the distinguishing features of what I call the project of ISIS. You know, identify the the overall political theology of ISIS, which is the intersection, of course, of politics and theology. You know, a basic assumption here, I mean, of course, there is a lot that has been written on ISIS before and continues to be written on ISIS because they're newsworthy. But most of the interest, most of the work on ISIS focuses on operational aspects, which which are important, of course, and I mean, they're all legitimate by and large. Often they are legitimate questions of uh, to address. You know, there is, there's been work on the, the, the cruelty exhibited by ISIS. There's been work on their organizational structure, on their relationship to uh, the apparatus of Saddam Hussein, you name it. You know, their funding and finances, uh, their, of course, their media operations and so on. But largely, most of the studies that we have are studies that focus on aspects of the operation of ISIS. Very few people have taken their ideology seriously. Very, very few people have tried to identify what animates a movement like, like ISIS. The extent to which uh, ideology has been invoked is to show that there are uh, gaps and weaknesses and flaws in their uh, legal reasoning and whatever, uh, rather than try to reconstruct the project as a project, as a collective project, take their ideology seriously, rec- reconstruct the project, and then provide a critique of that project, which is which is what I try to do in this book. Uh, I, I take their ideology seriously. I take their political theology seriously. It's not ideology incomplete. I'm not talking here about history of, of ideas in, in isolation from um, the living phenomena. It's a combination of the two, uh, an overall project. So I start with the assumption that this, they have an overall project. They reflect on what they do. They think, they strategize. They reflect on the experience of the Islamic movements before them in the last three decades. They have a repertoire of, of ideas that they draw on even from way back. Uh, and they construct an ideology which is connected to a political project. Uh, and I think a compelling critique of ISIS needs to start with such a construction. So this is this is why I wrote this book, uh, why I felt I have a, to be honest, I felt the responsibility to write this book. You know, I felt that I'm equipped because of my training, because of the type of things that, that I do, I'm equipped to address these issues in ways probably other people who work on, on uh, narrowly on, on security issues or on, on politics and whatever are not. I am interested in hearing about your thoughts on how the literature about ISIS may have changed in the last couple of years, what with its uh, arguable diminishment in power and its composition. But first, what do you think is the most contentious argument that your book makes about ISIS? You know, I've already started alluding to that. It's not so much contentious, but it's, I mean, you know, the focus is not the, the focus that you usually get in, in studies of ISIS. You know, the focus is usually on, as I said, on operational aspects. And again, all 
interesting and all need to be studied and the questions which are raised are legitimate questions but there has been less focus on their overall project and to some extent you know this may or may not be deliberate because one very common sometimes explicit and sometimes implicit uh, assumption in scholarship on modern islamic movements is that these movements are more interesting uh, as movements and less interesting as, uh, you know, modern Islamic movements are more interesting than modern Islamic thought. That they are thin, that there is no, nothing there to study or analyze. And that the theology that, you know, that they're thin intellectually, there's nothing to look at and, and whatever. And, you know, and I think, uh, you know, you, you, I'm sure you read the article and I think you will see how I don't accept this notion. The, the key difference is, is I, you know, I look at, at the political theology holistically. I take for granted my, what I know, you know, the things that I say about the operation are derivative. I mean, you know, I think there are enough studies, not all of them are equally good, but there are enough good thorough studies of various aspects of the operations of of, of the movement. There are thousands, literally thousands and thousands of of studies of uh, ISIS. And I depend on those. I don't presume to make any contribution on, on, on this front. What I wanted to achieve and what I what I focused on is to look look holistically at, at their projects and then to provide a critique of this project. So in, in other words, to portray their project faithfully, not positively, but faithfully, as they would as they would portray it and present it, and then proceed to critique it rather than focus on a on an in a, on a corner of that project and you know take it out of context of take it out of their own context and and. Uh, and provide a critique for it. So your book breaks down the political theology of ISIS by what you refer to as its genealogy and its architecture. I'm guessing the genealogy hasn't changed in the last couple of years, meaning the literature that guides it. But has its architecture changed then? Or is it just a natural next phase in its status? You know, I wouldn't call it natural. Yes, the architecture has changed, but also the genealogy has changed because when I told you I immersed myself for a year, it's very tense to have to read every day, you know, in and out to have to read the literature. It's rough. It's not a smooth ride. I'm not keeping up. I keep up a little bit, of course. I mean, you know, I keep up. It's not a, it's not a primary project that I'm working on. I mean, in the, after that, I worked on my 18th century book. But they are already reflecting on the changes they're putting in place new organizational structures, adapting to the, I mean, they first of all recognized the defeat of the, of the Khilafah project, of the caliphate, of the territorial caliphate, the, you know, Dawlat al-Khilafah, what they refer to as the state of the caliphate. They've already recognized that defeat and they're adapting to this and they're writing about this. There is a huge amount of literature that has been produced in the last two years in response to this new phenomena, to reflect just as they do, and you know, I try to illustrate that in my in my little essay, just as they do reflect on the experience in the last three decades or so, or four decades now, of the Islamic movement, what they consider to be the weaknesses and failures, and the strength and and and, and successes in the, in in the early period. They reflect on the literature, they relate to it, they engage with it, and they produce their own variants on, on this literature. They've been doing quite a lot of that in the last two years, when it became clear that they are, you know, they're losing territory. And also, so they're thinking of that and they're putting in place, I don't know, 
I can't say given that I haven't really looked very carefully at everything they've produced. Uh, I, I can't say if they've put in place a, you know, a coherent collective alternative view for this new phase, but they're, they're reflecting on it. So even in terms of the, the intellectual genealogy, there is already, there are new layers that they're putting in place. There are new reflections and there are new attempts to, to, to make sense from their per- perspective of what's happening and to propose alternatives to it. So now they don't, they've recognized the failure of Dawlat al-Khilafah. They talk about Wilayat al-Iraq and Wilayat sham whereas when, you know, when they were at the peak of when they had a coherent, you know, contiguous state, they would only refer to the state. They say, refer to Dawlat al-Khilafah. Now they talk about the Wilaya, the, you know, the governance, governance, uh, of, of Iraq and, and Sham and, and so on. I think a month or two ago, they they launched a new website, which they call Ghuraba. So the, the word Ghuraba is in reference to a hadith by the Prophet, which is which says something like, Islam was born as a strange phenomenon. Ghuraba means strangers. Uh, or estranged or whatever. And it, so it was born as a strange phenomena, a hadith attributed to Muhammad. Uh, and it'll eventually, it'll again be, you know, be strange, be estranged. Fatuba al-Ghuraba. And blessed are the, the strangers and so on. So what the way they're positing themselves now as people who've been defeated, they're isolated, they're estranged within their societies, but they're continuing the struggle from this perspective. So they're creating already, you know, they're, they're invoking the, the tradition and they're creating a new, a new narrative for this current phenomenon. I don't know if it, if it, you know, if it results in a coherent, uh, because I haven't done the, the, the research, but they're certainly moving. They're engaging with the, with the tradition and with the, so the genealogy, as I said, has changed, but also the organizational setups have changed. I think they're more decentralized. There are already some studies about that. Uh, some articles. I mean, there are people who who work on, sec- from, you know, who focus on the security and operational aspects, and do, who continue to trace Al Qaeda and, and the operations of Al Qaeda. And there are studies that show that they're decentralized. They're more decentralized. But but you know, here is a key thing: the defeat of the state project doesn't mean defeat at every other level. The estimates, the current estimates by various security organi- you know, studies and so on. The current estimates is that they have something in the order of 10,000 fighters and followers uh, in Syria and another equal number, comparable number in Iraq. In 2011, just two or three years before they launched their, this new undertaking, which resulted in the, in, you know, in, in the establishment of a state, they had about 10% of these numbers. And they were able within two or three years to build it. So, you know, I, I, I think it's premature to assume that this phenomena is gone. But even if they are as an organization, if they are defeated, and certainly they're not as strong as they used to be two years ago, something else might come up. You know, and, I, and again, in my book, and I think, you know, my suggestion is one needs to address this both at an organizational level, but also at, a, at, a, at, a, at an intellectual, ideological, genealogical level. The key thing is something else might come up, uh, you know, a, a new organizational structure. They are very flexible. They're very adaptable. Uh, they think about previous experiences and can they come up with new solutions. They've proven, proven over and over again their ability to do that. 
So there are indications already, there are many indications that they are repositioning themselves and restructuring their operations to to deal with the current situation. And there are, there are also indications that they're reflecting and they're, they're coming with a, with a political theological structure, redefining their project so that it's, it's reflective, creating a new narrative uh, that is reflective of this new phase and, uh, and can serve as a source of inspiration for their follow- followers in this new phase. I wonder if that their dedication to producing new textual materials is what makes them still distinct. Uh, conventional media kind of tends to lump all of the so-called extremist groups together, Taliban, Al-Qaeda. But ISIS still seems to be the one that is most dedicated to not just reading a genealogy of material, but also producing it. Definitely, definitely. By the way, you asked me about what's also different and distinct about, not controversial, but different and distinct about my uh, earlier essay. This is one of the things which, uh, which is, you know, their dedication to produce material, to, to produce a, a framework a political theological framework and narrative. They've done that before and they're doing that, of course, to a lesser extent. I mean, they don't have the same tools at their disposal. They don't have the studios to produce and so on, but they continue. It's, it's, it's remarkable that despite their setbacks, and there are many of them, that they insist, they continue to insist on trying to do that. And that's one thing which is different. The other thing which is also different, by the way, which is in, in my approach, as you said, People tend to think of of a continuum, you know, with minor differences and whatever, but without understanding these differences between Al-Qaeda and and ISIS and so on. And one thing that I've tried to do is to identify, you know, some of the serious fundamental differences between the Qaeda project and the ISIS project. And there are significant differences. Interestingly, you will, one can see these differences by looking at the way they both draw on a on a common genealogy, on a common layer of you know materials, but then they choose to take it in different ways, and they choose to you know they choose to interpret it differently, and so on. Uh, and I think these differences are significant. And you're completely right. I think one of the things that that is distinctive, and they've done this, I think, much more than Qaeda. Uh, although Qaeda has a longer pedigree and, 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 you know, it's been around for a longer period of time and so on, is their insistence on producing narratives, on producing uh, a, a political theological framework uh, that, that explains and justifies their, their uh, overall project and describes their overall project. I was reading recently about Soweda. In your book, you mentioned that one of the biggest consequences of ISIS was that it functioned kind of as a scapegoat or a scarecrow for legitimizing state-led authoritarian violence against the opposition. So I noticed in the case of Soweto, which has just happened in the last couple of weeks, that a lot of people thought that the army, the Syrian army, chose not to come quick enough to save the 200 uh, Druzy population that was there. Do you think they still function, at least in Syria, maybe in other places, as a way to undermine any kind of opposition, any kind of difference, exacerbating uh, sectarian violence? You, you know, what, one of the things that I, I don't know how successful I, I, I was, but one of the things that I tried to address in the, in the earlier essay is the, this notion that, the, that, that ISIS is a, 
is a byproduct of some sort of conspiracy. Some people say it's an American conspiracy. Others say it's a conspiracy of the regime. Others say it's various Gulf states and so on and so forth. What I try to argue is, you know, politics in a way is a form of conspiracy, you know, always, everywhere. Uh, And, you know, and yes, there are intersections between various intelligence agencies and there are you know, different states and agencies and whatever that thought they could take advantage of ISIS. But ultimately, at the end of the day, there is, uh, you know, if I may use this term, you know, in brackets, and again, I'm not praising them, but there is an integrity to the ISIS project. They, some people take advantage of them. Sometimes they take advantage of states and whatever, of the interests and of, uh, and there are intersections of various, of the interests of various actors on this very messy scene in the region, but at the end of the day, there is a, there is an integrity to their to their project. Now it may be, and I really don't know because this is the type of information you need. You need intelligence on this. I mean, this is not my interest, in, my key interest in, in in this phenomenon. I don't know. I mean, it may be that now that they are slightly weaker, that uh, that uh, people who a couple of years ago realized that that they have to fight ISIS that. You know, that this is becoming a scary phenomena and they genuinely dedicated themselves to fighting them. It may be that some might think that now that they are weaker, then they can allow them to exist in a small pocket and then try to manipulate them. It may be. So did the regime not interfere? I, I really don't know. I mean, it's possible. I it's think not, it's more you know, important that people believed it than if it's true or not. I thought yeah. that it was interesting that people still believe that ISIS is a scapegoat for lack of action or action, alternatively, on the part of a, uh, a state government. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, this might be the case in certain instances and in certain locations. But by and large, this is a group that has, it's, there is an integrity to this project. They believe in it. They are motivated by it. They're not mere instruments. They might intersect with other interests, but they're not instruments of these interests. They are their own instruments. They have their own project. I mean, you know, I don't know what it takes, what, what it would take to, for people to believe that. There was a point in time, not a long time ago in our lifetime, when almost the whole world, I mean, there's, there was nothing that people were united on except fighting ISIS. <laughs> you know, there, there, was a, there, there was a moment, an extended moment, where there was a, you know, I mean, this was the only consensus you could find in the region. Not everyone necessarily, but, you know, you know, there are major global forces that that were intent on fighting and, and checking and putting an end to the ISIS phenomena, at least, you know, as it existed a couple of years ago. And I think that's because they actually, all of these forces saw the integrity of this project. Now, now, now that it's degraded, I mean, you know, it's not beyond... Any of many of the of the of the current agents, uh, of, you know, on, on the Middle East scene, it's not beyond them to, to think that maybe they could manipulate ISIS and use them to their own, to their own interest. But I think this is this is this is not the primary way. Uh, this should not be the primary way in which we we view this phenomena. This is a very serious phenomena, and it's not gone. Even if the names change and so on, there will be offshoots and there will be other manifestations of this phenomenon, largely because the conditions that produce them are even worse today than they used to be, you know, five or six years ago. You know, at the the beginning of the Arab Spring, there was another hope for people. Now there is no hope. I mean, most of the Arab Spring movements have been contained and 
and derailed and so on and so forth. So which which forces people to move and, and, and you know, to, to seek other desperate sort of options and alternatives, self-destructive options and alternatives like, like ISIS. So the conditions that precipitated the emergence of this movement in the first place have not changed. In fact, if, if anything, they're much worse. The severe sectarianism in the region, the, the failure, the failure of of multiple uh, political projects. I mean, you know, there isn't a single project, political project in the region that one can look at and say, oh, this is a great success story or whatever. People are suffering more and more every day and they're getting more polarized. And of course, external influences, uh, you know, contribute, uh, you know, sort of accentuate these these internal conflicts and, and, and structures. So that hasn't changed. I think it's premature to, to start thinking of them as a as something that's going to disappear. That's exactly how people thought, by the way, and I, I think I addressed that a little bit in the, in the essay. That's how people thought when Sarqawi was, was killed, and they were wrong. So is that the most important feature of the book, that these types of ideologies are their legacies. They exist as building blocks onto another group or another movement that will succeed them. One cannot declare victory just on the from a you know on a security level that the military feel. I mean if if there are no genuine alternatives, if, if these are not confronted as political projects and equally important as religious, political, theological projects, and if they're not undermined as political ideological projects, they come, they will keep on coming back. The conditions are still bad in the region. So, you know, if the conditions that precipitated their emergence are not addressed, and if the, if the ideological legacy is not confronted, anyway, ISIS had significant following in the, in the Muslim world. Of course, not the majority of Muslims. The vast majority of Muslims were, were very critical of ISIS and the, and the violence and the savagery and so on. But they actually had, and there were, you know, there were various algorithms that were developed to sort of measure the level of support, you know, direct, uh, intense support, as well as indirect and, and, and whatever following. They had a following and they continue to have a following. And you know what? Now that they don't have a state, now that their cruelty and savagery is not as visible because they don't control territory, because usually you start seeing the, the, the crimes when, when you have power over territory. Now they don't, that they don't have that, that the territorial presence, that's clear territorial presence, increasingly people will start thinking of them as a phenomena of resistance. These are the heroes that are resisting this and that and so on. And the chances of idealizing them are even more than they used to be before. What I'm suggesting, I'm not saying that this is not a phenomenon that cannot be confronted, but it has to be confronted with an alternative project, with an alternative social project that provides hope for for the people that are joining them, and also an alternative political, theological, ideological project that undermines their that recognizes and addresses the the, the, the problems in, in, in the in the ideology that, that, that is presented. And I don't think this is done yet. I mean, you know, I, this is this work has not been achieved yet. What kind of audiences do you think that it's most important for this book to reach? I've read reviews on your book that say that it's a really important primer for understanding the intersection of politics and religion in this group as well as a, a good way to understand its history. Although you mention in that section that it's not just supposed to be regurgitating history, but supposed to be contextualizing what the mm -hmm. theology is. 
So who should read this book to understand the, the phenomenon? Initially, students were interested in Islamic movements. If you're speaking within academia, you know, contemporary historians of the Middle East and beyond at this point, because this is a, a global phenomenon, I mean, increasingly political scientists, but also, you know, an educated general public, I hope, will be, will be able to benefit from my work. Because, this is, you know, I didn't write a, a journalistic essay. You know, I, I think I didn't write a journalistic essay. The type of interest that people, you know, have in high journalism to understand the phenomena, which is, you know, which is a very potent, dangerous, scary phenomena, certainly for Muslims, uh, but also on a global scene. I mean, and again, you know, the, the repercussions of this phenomena are still with us and, you know, we, we're going to deal with us. So, you know, for people in the, in, you know, who are interested in the modern Middle East or the modern Islamic world, uh, that's an obvious audience for this book. But I, you know, I would hope that it could also be useful for, for the general public as well. And I'm thankful to you and for, you know, for this opportunity to sort of pitch it for, for a broader audience, not just academics. Yeah, I think it's also important to touch upon this subject a couple years on, you know, continue to touch upon it in a, a meaningful way, not just in the New York Times kind of way, but talk about the theology and the continuum. And, you know, to, to speaking of continuity, and, you know, ISIS has adjusted and is adapting to a new mode of operation now that the, the Dawlat al-Khilafah, the state of the Caliphate, has been defeated. So they're doing that. But again, if you remember in my book, you know, I sort of suggest that they've already built in within their narrative, you know, at the ideological level, this notion that if they succeed, so be it, and their success and the state of itself is the emblem of, the, of that success, and the, is, the state is what underwrites the, their whole claim to authority. So if they succeed, so be it. But if they fail, you know, what they've, what they've proposed in their narrative is that if they fail, so oh, that's also fine. You know, they created a narrative where they're not accountable for success, although they would use it when they get it. But if, if, even if they fail, they're only an instrument of God, and they're doing, doing what God had asked them to do, uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. So, so they allow in their narrative for the situation they're in now. I mean, that's already built into their narrative. Now, of, of, you know, when I try to identify some of the key features of, the, of, of their ideology, that I, I think I identified five or six. One of them is the state, and it's very important, of course, for in, in, this, in this previous phase, and that is certainly something they no longer have. But pretty much all of the other elements of their ideology, of their narrative, their political theology are still there. You know, the notion that there should be no compromise. One of the things, by the way, emerging in the current debates, internal debates within ISIS, is a very intense discussion over takfir, over, you know, within their, their own group. They're turning against each other. They're forming committees, inquisition committees, to investigate the views of some of the key leaderships, as it so happens Quite often, these leaders that they investigate and they chastise and they condemn, then, you know, I mean, they keep on, I mean, they've, they've been targets of intensive military operations and many of them are dying. But it's interesting to see the intensity of the debate. There are some people who are saying we should be more open, we should be more lenient when we assess our fellow warriors in Al-Qaeda. Others say no way. You know, we have, so this first component, no compromise, is something which is being reinforced over and over again. The other one, you know, the focus on violence and the assistance on, on ideology, you know, and creating an ideological 
narrative that justifies and you know so violence is not just a, a tool it's a meaning it's own it's a it's an end in its own right and the focus on it that's again that's something which is being re, you know re-emphasized in their literature the deliberate manufacturing of chaos as a tool towards achieving their ends again this is something that they're invested in and the all-out sectarian war and again this is this remains a very actually now i think it's even more emphasized I mean, it's always been throughout there. I mean, this is this is a signature of, of uh, but the politics of, of sectarian identity and then portraying themselves as the defenders, as the shield that will defend suppressed Sunnis, of whom there are quite a few. You know, again, this is central to their political discourse. And then the notion of obedience, again, obedience as an end in its own right, obedience to the head authority, no matter how that head authority, whether it's whether it's an authority connected to the state. Or at this point, it's a diffused authority. Now, there are problems with all of these things. But, you know, here you go, five or out of six elements are, if anything, are being reinforced and re-emphasized in the current uh, rhetoric of the offshoots of ISIS. So there is a lot of continuity. And then, of course, there is the continuity in the approach and the, the reflection on the earlier experience. And... Flexible, though very stubborn in some ways, flexible organizationally, but very stubborn ideologically, attempt to reconstruct and you know to 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 come up with with reflections and then with with ideas on how to deal with the new situation, with the new phase, and then adapt oneself and continue that continue to, to continue to fight. So this is a phenomenon that has not ended. And even, you know, of course, the specific organizational structure is uh, undermined, but there are other other structures that, that will emerge. And, and, and then there is, a, there is a very uncertain future. It's not just what we're witnessing today, but what but, but might actually happen uh, in, in, in the future in a, in a region which continues to be plagued by, by all sorts of crises. What would you recommend that people read or watch or listen in order to become more familiar with perhaps Islamic political theology in general or ISIS political theology in specific? You know, as I said, there are many good studies. Uh, I mean, there are people who, who trace the, the problem with many of these studies is they tend to be narrow. They tend to focus on an aspect of, and, you know, they're not comprehensive. But there are many studies. And you know, frankly, I'm, you know, it's, I don't have a, a list to recommend in front of me. I mean, you know, there are there are people who you know have been writing on the subject who've been following the the development of ISIS. They don't always have a theoretical or semi-theoretical even. I'm not talking about uh, you know a very deep complex theoretical framework to understand the movement. They usually though quite often you get information which is useful. But then along with that, I think uh, for someone who wants to study ISIS, I think it's important to keep up to study their their ideology, just to look at their literature and what they write in that literature, all of it. I mean, not just bits and pieces of that literature. Uh, it's important to keep up with that and to continue to analyze that and understand how it relates to their to their uh, modes of operation. I've mostly seen more observatory journalistic style. Like you said, not very deep. They just observe what's happening and don't really seem to want to understand why. But yeah, it, it is interesting. It's That's why these kinds of conversations are important, because I do kind of delve into the why. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate this really fascinating conversation. Thank you for this opportunity.
listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com. To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com, or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com. <laughs>